like guys. So many. So many white guys. So what? How much whiteness? All over the place. God damn. So many white guys. So many white guys. Oh, you know what time it is. It's time for another episode of So Many White Guys from WNYC Studios. As per usual, it's me, Phoebe Lynn Robinson, and I'm joined by the sweetest little chicken nugget, Joni Mitch. Me, 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 me. Ooh, that was good. <laughs> I'm glad we got another sexy-ass, dope-ass episode for you guys. How you feeling, Joni? I'm feeling great. This season, it's a good one. Everybody's been working so hard on it. I'm happy to be back in the studio hanging out with you and doing these awesome interviews and like also like reuniting with Alana. This is just great. You know, three, it's my favorite number. It is? It is my favorite number. And Blind Aww. Melon, they say it's a magic number, which I know is originally from Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> well, do you know the song Three is a Magic Number? No, how's it go? I don't sing. Do it. No. Do it. I sing on this podcast all the time. Do it. Please. Uh, uh no. Please, Joni, I'm not moving on. Three, oh, it's the magic number. Yeah, it is. It's the magic number. You're not doing it right now. What I'm hearing, is this the year of yes or the year of no? No. So it's the year of no? Enjoy your life. (laughs) (laughs) I would sooner take off my pants and rub my butt on the microphone before I would sing on this show. Okay, that's truly how everyone in here is going to get pink eyes. So I think that's just disrespectful to your co-workers. (laughs) Okay, fine. You You won't sing. Okay. I'm sorry. It's my one. It's my policy. I only karaoke. I pick songs where I don't have to sing. So like we didn't start the fire was my jam. Cause you just like talk really fast. So that's your, your go-to song is we didn't start the fire. Yes. Also in eighth grade, I had to do a, my dance recital dance was to, we didn't start the fire. I had to wear an all red unitard with flares on it. Okay, that truly sounds like Little Miss Sunshine if she was older. Did you ever do dance? I didn't do dance, but I remember, so I went to a private prep school. uh, Not to brag, but I'm just saying uh, it was me and a lot of white people. (laughs) We had like a little like talent show. And I remember we did, I forget who were the other two girls with me, but we lip synced um, uh, TLC's No Scrubs and I was Left Eye. Do you have a photo of that? I don't have a photo uh, of that, but I remember I used to, I like watch the music video and I like study like left eyes like uh, movements and she had this one thing where she like kind of like outlined a TV screen and uh-huh. I had to like do that with my fingers and everyone was like, oh! <laughs> she did the finger thing with the TV like it was like truly like a, they were like at a Beyonce concert and I just did like all of Lemonade. Is this where your career in showbiz began? <laughs> It all started. Um, Did your mom think it was so cute? They were just like, uh, Philip and Octavia were like, 
whatever, dude. Like, you're at home watching The West Wing all day, talking about how you're CJ Craig. There's a lot happening here. You watched here. The West Wing when you were in eighth grade. I, wa- I watched it in middle sc- in uh, high school. My favorite show growing up, that and Felicity. So what did you wear as your TLC outfit? Did you wear, like, baggy jeans and a crop top? Did I wear what? No. <laughs> I'm seriously considering getting locution lessons for this accent of mine. I want to bury it in the backyard no, no. and hit it with a shovel. That is truly <laughs> the worst thing you could ever do. Please do not change the way you speak. Well, I just wanted to know if you wore baggy jeans or not when you <laughs> did that rap concert. <laughs> well, you know what, Joanna? Yeah. I think it's time to throw to a commercial. That's right. I'm flipping a script on you this time. I'm going to toss the commercial, okay? Thrilled. Oh, I was expecting you to be like, no, but why? You're like, thank God you're finally fucking doing your job, season three. Can I go to the bathroom now? <laughs> BRB. Hey, honey bunches of hoes. That's host spelled the French way. <laughs> Joanna, I'm a goddamn mess. Classic, <laughs> as the French say. Yes. Uh, so welcome back to So Many White Guys. So, Joanna, you know I'm excited about today because I am meeting an actual goddess. Yeah, I know. Amazing guest. We have Gloria Steinem. Was that very Oprah-like or just like a weirdo? I checked under my chair. <laughs> and you know what was underneath? What? Feminism. Ooh. Ooh! I mean, this woman is legendary, y'all. I'm talking about feminist with a capital F, a global activist, writer, journalist, co-founder of Miss Magazine, fashion icon, queen of the middle part. Have you seen her hair? It is legendary, y'all. This woman does not fuck around, you guys. I mean, she's inspo to all of us. Gloria has been dropping feminist wisdom in action for literally decades. And at 83, she's still going, still marching, still sitting down with other dope ladies to plot equality. What did you think of the interview, Joni? Oh, my God. Fantastiche. Okay, so... Pump up that volume and get ready for this amazing interview with Gloria. I love her to bits. Bye, Q, bye. Okay, well, Gloria, glow, glow as you (laughs) allow me to call you. Thanks so much for coming in today. This is truly an honor and a pleasure. And I'm pinching myself and I can't wait to like tell all my friends I got to talk to you today. Well, I thank you for bringing me into the wonderful world of podcasts. Yeah, you should have a podcast, actually. The Glow Glow Hour. You know? And, like, people come over to you. think so? Well, I don't know. You see, you're initiating me into this world of possibilities. So I'll think about it. You should do it. I think everyone will listen to it. You have so much knowledge and wisdom. You're going to get the ratings. You don't have to worry about that. (laughs) (laughs) But I I did a lot of preparation for this. I did not shave my legs today. (laughs) I just was like, you know, I'm just going to own it today and just let my leg hairs grow out. It's okay that you can't see it. I know it's there, so that's good. Um, But I also want to talk about so many things with you today. For people listening, you're very accomplished. I mean, you're a journalist, you're a writer, activist. By writer, you've written eight books. Yes, and and most people my age have written 
most writers have yeah. written a ton more than that. Yeah. I mean, I, ironically, a, a, a movement that we love and care about gives us what we want to write about and takes away the time yeah. <laughs> to write it. Right? <laughs> but yeah, you, you, you're so accomplished. And I, I remember in um, your memoir, Life on the Road, you wrote about you learned how to read from reading road signs. Mm-hmm. And you didn't go to school until what age? Well, I don't think I went a full year until I was 10 or 11, right? Wow. I mean, I would go until it got cold, and then we would get in our house trailer and, you know, yeah. go someplace. Yeah. And so I've noticed a lot with people who tend to grow up kind of like traveling around a lot. There is um, there's a sense of curiosity they possess, and there's also an ability to sort of relate and connect with other people because you have to do it kind of quickly because you don't know if it's going to be taken away. Would you say that's kind of true of you as well? Yeah, I I think that is true. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's right. And of course, at the time, I was envying you know what I saw in the movies. You know, living in the same house, yeah. and going to the same school, and, and now I value the fact that I was wandering in that way. And even though I never would have thought I would continue it, obviously I yeah. have. Looking back on it now, like, what do you enjoy most about your childhood in terms of the sort of like traveling spirit of it all? Well, one thing in retrospect, again, I wouldn't have said this at the time, Mm -hmm. but because I didn't go to school very much in those early years, I think I escaped a brainwashing. Because Mm -hmm. especially in the 40s and the 50s, it was very, very stereotyped, all your books and your lessons and so on. There were primers called Dick and Jane, and only Dick carried the pail up the hill. Yeah. You know, right, right. Yeah. Um, So... You know, in the absence of that, I think I was lucky mm-hmm. because obviously babies are not born with all this craziness. They have to be carefully taught. Yeah. Uh, so I, I value that. Um, I value the fact that my father, as I wrote about, you know, his big point of pride was he never had a job, mm-hmm. and by which he meant he was always his own boss. Mm-hmm. So I think that equipped me to be a freelance writer some things, of course, I myself am only realizing. For instance, until all the, the great wave of Me Too and Time's Up, I would not have said to you that I didn't work in an office for any reason except that I wanted to get up when I wanted to and not have to get dressed and I could type at home and everything. But now that I think about it, I realize that I was also avoiding the political, sexual atmosphere of an office. So maybe like subconsciously you knew like, I don't want to deal with that? Yeah, I mean, the way I would have said it to myself is, well, if I go into the New York Magazine office, some guy is going to hand me his letters to mail. So, you know, I'm still realizing some of the reasons that I didn't have a regular job. So even before you started, because I know you moved to New York City in your 20s to pursue writing. I I went to India for a couple of years after I got out of college and then I moved to New York, yeah. What was your uh, experience in India like? Well, you know, India at the time was only 10 years away from independence. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, you know, it was its own self. Yeah. Um, of course, also, I was just engaged in trying not to get married. So I fled to India for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> There's always more than You're one like, reason. Here's my passport. I'm out of here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Just just ghost the person. You don't have to, you know, leave the continent. Yeah, well, he was a very <laughs> tempting guy. <laughs> um but I'm glad I, I went there because, of course, I had no idea. I mean, I'd grown up in this country, and I didn't understand that we were not the average in mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. So I really learned a lot. I learned organizing 
but it took me a long time to realize that it was applicable here. So, mm. I mean, the, our country seems so different that I didn't understand that the guidelines of organizing are the same wherever you are. Yeah. So you're in India for two years. So then what inspired you to come back? Was it purely because you wanted to write in New York? Because, you know, I was a freelance writer, I think, up until, what, three years ago? And I was just really kind of like sort of scraping by. And Mm -hmm. so walk me through, like, you know, the young, Gloria, ambitious person who's coming to New York to come. Well, I I mean, I I lived with a roommate who was an artist. We lived in a one-room studio on West 56th Street. Wow. (laughs) I love that. And... um, you know, she was uh, doing freelance illustrating mm-hmm. uh, for magazines, and I was doing freelance writing. We would have boyfriends from time to time, so we weren't always there. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> but it was a time of adventure, I would mm-hmm. say, and possibilities and learning yeah. uh, and feeling like an outsider. Well, how so? Well, you know, there was not exactly a place in society for single women doing mm-hmm. what we were doing. And both of us had come from kind of not so great yeah. economic backgrounds. So it's that atmosphere in which being a young woman allows you a passport into worlds you can't enter. Mm. You're a temporary visitor. Yeah. But you do get to learn a lot because you're treated the same as the man you're with mm. or or somewhat mm. the same. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Of course, when the same people see you the next day in the street, they don't recognize yeah. you. But, <laughs> but it was, it, I think both of us were exploring other worlds. And there were, you know, the a lot of the young men who were magazine editors mm. and illustrators and art directors and so on were also, you know, adventurous and full of energy and... Um, I remember Paul Desmond, the musician Paul Desmond, lived in the next block. And, you know, he used to ask me to walk him around the Museum of Modern Art while he was high on mescaline and things like that. (laughs) 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 So it was kind of an adventurous show business neighborhood where nobody got up and had breakfast in the 6th Avenue deli until, like, 1 in the afternoon. Yeah. That's so cool. And so... You know, everyone really, I think a lot of people really do look to you as sort of this groundbreaker. And I'm sure when you were in the midst of, like, establishing yourself as a writer, did you ever sort of feel that weight or that sort of responsibility of that, like, I'm a woman that's, like, you know, infiltrating the Playboy Mansion, or I'm writing about, you know, women's liberation in a way that maybe people don't want to hear from me? No, I didn't, because there was no movement. When I'm I'm almost a decade older from than most of the women who were— Really starting this, uh, what you what is called the second wave. Yeah. I don't think I believe in waves because I was a '50s person mm-hmm. and they were '60s yeah. people mainly. So I was thinking that if I broke the rules and didn't misbehave too much, mm-hmm. I could get away with it. I wasn't understanding that we could change the rules. Yeah. So you just say you don't believe in the various waves of feminism. Why? Why is that? Well, because I, I noticed that um, what is perceived as the second wave or the third wave varies according to the individual situation. So if, mm. a, if a young woman has a very conservative, traditional, anti-feminist family and comes out of that and becomes herself little by little, mm-hmm. she is like a second wave person. Right. right. On the other hand, if her mother and grandmother and 
grandfather and you know yeah. have been feminists, she's like a third or fourth waiver. Right. So so it, it just doesn't seem to conform to chronology so mm. much as experience. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so you know, you're starting out as a writer, and you know, you're sort of witnessing like the movement take place. But when did you realize the power of your words and your commentary about the women's movement? Mm. Like when did you? realize that, oh, people are paying attention to what I'm saying, and it's sort of shaping the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in love with Louisa May Alcott as a child, mm-hmm. and and she's actually a great example of somebody who totally made it as a writer in every way and mm-hmm. worked herself to the bone. But I didn't know any living women who were making a living writing, so I didn't know how long it would last. Yeah. But of course, I, as of in my generation, I thought, well, I'm rebelling for the moment, but eventually I'll get married and have children and do what everybody says you're supposed to That's do. That's what you really thought for yeah, yourself? Yeah, because there, there wasn't any other model out there. Yeah. And I'm grateful to the women's movement for coming along and saying, wait a minute, we don't all have to live the same way. Yeah. You know, but I didn't understand that. I just kept putting off. Mm. Into the distant future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what I thought I was supposed to do. Yeah. What was your take on marriage at that time? Well, I think I had been taught if you were a woman, it was your one life-changing opportunity. And if you really think that, it makes marriage a lot like death, you know, because then you're never going to have mm. <laughs> another right. life-changing opportunity. So it doesn't help you make that choice, yeah. really. Yeah. Right. And so you put it off as like, this is something I don't want no, yes. yeah, I just kept yeah. saying, I'll do that. Okay, yeah. just not right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so what What was sort of your your awakening as a feminist where you, you had like your aha moment, like Oprah likes to say, like, oh, this changed me. Like I mm-hmm. think when I started my own blog and when I was 25, mm-hmm. that's really when I sort of, it clicked for me, like, Phoebe, you're a feminist, duh. Mm-hmm. So what was it for you? Well, but was it your own blog or was it something yeah, it that happened my, in your life? It was my own blog and I was sort of writing about like pop culture stuff. And I think it was at the time where there was just like a lot of like dust up over abortion rights and mm-hmm. uh, reproductive rights. And I was just really sort of impassioned to be like, this is what I'm going to write about. And I was like, oh, yeah. That's because you're a feminist. That's why you feel this way. Mm-hmm. So what was it for you? Well, I think we share that because mm-hmm. here, I mean, I was we had started New York Magazine. It was quite new. And mm-hmm. I was doing a political column. And I went to cover an abortion hearing where women were speaking about the experience of having an illegal abortion mm-hmm. because this was before the Supreme Court ruling. So they were saying, wait a minute, let's hear from women who've really had this experience. And that was a revelation to me because I had not ever before heard women stand up and telling the truth about mm-hmm. something that was illegal, unacceptable, only happened to women yeah. and taking it seriously. You know, So I had had an abortion while I was living in London, working as a waitress on my way to, <laughs> to India yeah. and not told anyone. And I just suddenly realized, that, but this is crazy. Yeah. Look statistically at how many women in our lifetime you know, yeah. need an abortion at some time. And that was as that was the Oprah moment mm-hmm. or as close as I came to an Oprah moment. Yeah. Not to get too personal, but so when you were in London and you were by yourself? Mm-hmm. I was by myself, right. What was that experience like for you just to have to like go through that alone, you know? <clears throat> well, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't so much going through it alone as it was the relief of finding anybody because I went through all the dumb things that 
we do, you know, like throwing ourselves downstairs or going horseback riding. Or I mean, you know, you, you don't. Do, you went horseback riding. You yes, did that. you yeah, threw because, yourself downstairs. Yes, <gasps> Gloria. Well, because wow. we we didn't get this yeah. kind of education. Who who knew? Right. right. Uh, and I uh, was just incredibly lucky mm-hmm. to find a doctor just in the phone book. And I had gone to him in the first instance, and he had given me some medication that, you know, you will get your period if you're not pregnant, but of course it didn't work. Mm-hmm. So I went back to him again, and he he was willing to uh, take a big risk and mm-hmm. sign saying that I medically needed an abortion, and you know, wow. which was a lie. Yeah. He said... Um, you must promise me two things, you know, that you will never tell anyone my name and you will do what you want to do with your life. Wow. So, I, you know, and of course, I was so impressed with that that for decades I didn't tell anybody his name, but then I realized, of course, he could not possibly be alive. Yeah. <laughs> so his name is John Sharp, and I dedicated my road book yeah. to him. I, I would assume, yes, you have done what you want to do with your life. But, yes, I have. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I, it's not as if I haven't made lots of mistakes and mm-hmm. done over things I already knew how to do mm-hmm. instead of marching forward and, you know. Yeah. But I think basically I've been able to do what I love and care about. Oh, my God. You're such an inspiration, <laughs> Gloria. I you're an inspiration it. right back. Are you kidding? And you, what? And you are oh and much younger, too. I mean, look, you'll have two more decades of doing what you love than I did. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> so, you, so you founded Miss Magazine in when? 71. 71. Mm-hmm. At that point, like, what made you decide that I, I wanted to start a magazine? Mm-hmm. What did you feel that you were going to— bring to the world of journalism and writing that you felt was sort of lacking when you were freelancing for other publications? Well, there was, and pretty much still is, no mm-hmm. woman's magazine. I mean, you know, now there's Bitch and, you know, yeah. other... But the big national magazines for women are not controlled by women or owned by women, yeah. even now. And their editorial content is more determined by advertising than by their readers. Mm-hmm. So it was clear that if we wanted to have a magazine we actually read, <laughs> you know, all of, yeah, that we were going to have to start our own. And so with the help of New York Magazine, because I had helped to start New York Magazine, mm-hmm. so they put a sample of Ms. Magazine in their year-end issue yeah, and then printed a whole issue as a sample. And the success of that allowed us to get an investor that is about one-fourth of the money we actually needed. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> it allowed us to start. Why do you think even now, it's 2018, there still are no women's magazines that are run mm-hmm. by women? Why do you think that still is at this point? Well, because the big publishing companies are not run by women. Yeah. And the economics of women's magazines are still about selling products. Mm. And even more so than they used to be. For instance, there used to be fiction and poetry in women's magazines, and that's pretty much gone. Yeah. Because advertisers want to be next to something that's about their product, fashion or Mm -hmm. shampoo or food or whatever it is. Yeah. And there's very rarely can magazines afford more pages that are fiction and poetry. Yeah. Okay, so you have Miss Magazine, and... Did you feel like more empowered that you were like, I'm creating 
this platform for other people? Like, how did you feel when you started the magazine? Well, it was, it, I mean, first of all, it was a alternate family, mm-hmm. you know, and that's so important. I mean, we all need people who, however different we may be, we kind of share the same goals and listen to each other's stories mm-hmm. and laugh at each other's jokes and tell each other when we fuck up and, yeah. we, you know, right. <laughs> So it was great. And we still are connected, you know, the Ms. folks. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I like that you have your hand in so many different pots and you really do establish lifelong connections with people, which I think is so important. Not only just, you know, spiritually for yourself, but also we were talking earlier about, you know, if you don't travel a lot or you're not exposed to different sorts of people, there can be maybe a lack of empathy or a lack of understanding. So, I think the fact that you're able to keep yourself connected with everyone, do you feel like that sort of has kind of kept you in touch and like really mm-hmm. knowledgeable about what's going on around you? Very much. And it's mm-hmm. it's made me very opposed to age segregation, like every other mm-hmm. kind of segregation. I think it's a mistake. I mean, most of the people I work with are like a quarter of my age or half my age. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I think that's important because they know things I don't know and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And very rarely have I spoken to an audience that was really mostly my age. Yeah. Only once in Florida. It was kind of depressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, you know, they're good people, but mm-hmm. they've been confined to one set of experiences. Yeah. So I, I really think we ought to talk more about age segregation while we're talking about other kinds. Absolutely. So what do you think that you you have learned from people, like you said, that are half your age or even younger? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've learned to think twice about gratitude because mm. they don't remember when it was worse. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So their aspirations are often higher and their anger is greater and it should be. Mm. You know, we need Mm. that kind of energy. Yeah. I can supply hope for them. I can be helpful because I do remember when it was worse. Mm -hmm. So I can tell them, okay, (laughs) it's likely to get better. Here's when it was worse. Yeah. Uh, What do you make of the shift that's happening in the culture, not only in terms of like harassment, but gender equality? It's just the overall sort of temperature. How are you kind of feeling about everything? Well, I'm on the road a lot, mm-hmm. so I see a lot of different things, and I feel a lot of different ways at any <laughs> given moment. Yeah. But if I think about it over time, I think what's different now is that the majority of the country is in a more advanced, I would say, frame of mind mm-hmm. because they no longer go along with the old categories of gender and race or, you know, the categories that we're supposed to be born into – They're questioning them or seeing beyond them. And that's the good news. The bad news is that there's at least a third of this country and of many other countries that is outraged that the old hierarchical system is on its way. And nowhere is it written that the majority is going to win. I mean, in Mm -hmm. the last election, Trump did not win the majority vote. He lost it, and yet he won anyway. Yeah. So it is a time of great danger, and the best comparison in my mind I've been able to come up with is one with domestic violence, because Mm -hmm. violence in the family is kind of the paradigm of violence in general. It's what normalizes violence. 
And we do know that when a woman, I mean, it's usually a woman, who is about to escape a violent household, mm -hmm. it's the time of maximum danger because she's about to be free. She's about to right. escape control. She is most likely to be beaten up or killed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we are as a country. We're about to be free. I mean, we're about to escape. Yeah. Because we are the majority now for the first time. Yeah. But it's also a time of danger. But we're not going to stop. I mean, we wouldn't tell a woman to stay home, mm -hmm. right? So how do you think we as a country can sort of protect ourselves? Because I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And I moved to New York when I was 17 for college. And I go to like LA to do comedy stuff or like Chicago. But like I haven't truly explored the majority of the country. So I, I don't actually know what the majority of country truly feels about certain different issues. So I'm wondering, as someone with your mm -hmm. like experience, is there anything that you think people like me who aren't as well-traveled misconceptions we have or misunderstandings that we have about actually what's going on? It's hard to generalize, but one thing mm -hmm. I think that I do see is more or less general is that people who live in urban centers mm -hmm. who are accustomed to living with each other and understanding that whatever differences we've been told about are minor compared to who we are as unique individuals mm -hmm. and human beings. I mean, we got that because we're walking around together, yeah. are very different from people who haven't had that experience, who are in rural or small town or gated communities. If you don't know each other, I mean, the key to everything is knowing each other, yeah. uh, then you project all kinds of things onto the mysterious or you know, threatening other. Yeah. So I do think if we look at the results of the election or at the uh, public opinion polls or whatever it is, that it is not so much state by state as city by segregated area. Mm -hmm. And what that tells us is that we have to know each other. <laughs> as Bell Hooks always says, if you buy shoes together, you can do politics together. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> That's great. I love your reference. I would never be like, as Bell Hooks says, I'd be like, you know, uh, Real Housewives of New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so when you look at, you know, the sort of progress that feminism has been making over the years, do you think it has become more accepting of women of color, of queer women? Is ableism sort of like an issue as well? Like, what mm -hmm. do you see? Well, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure about the word accepting because that mm -hmm. implies that somebody has the power to accept. Right. And I think in real life, I know in real life, that the women's movement has always been disproportionately black women. Yeah. And to say, is feminism accepting, you know, implies that white women have the power to accept or reject, which is not true. There is no such thing as white feminism. If it's white, it's not feminism. It but, has to yeah. include all women or it's not feminism, right? I absolutely agree, yeah. but I think maybe sometimes people feel... I don't know whether it's media representation. It is media the, representation. Yeah, the conversation. Here's, here's yeah. why I think I say that so vociferously, because mm -hmm. I was for so long traveling with Florence Kennedy or Margaret Sloan or, you know, this speaking partner. So we were a black-white speaking team, mm -hmm. and there would always be a little press conference, and the reporters would always ask me about the women's movement mm -hmm. and Margaret or Flo about the civil rights movement. And, you know, we would let it go for a while and then say, wait a minute, you know, we, we're both here talking about the women's movement. Yeah. But it never stopped happening for close to 20 years. 
They wow. could not accept the fact that a black woman was speaking for the women's movement, even though we were together mm-hmm. on a poster, yeah. <laughs> you know, both of us. Yeah. So I, it was driven home to me how crazy this is. Yeah. You know? And so how how do you think that we can sort of get, I don't want to say recognition, maybe a recognition or maybe sort of like including, you know. We just need to check our assumptions. Mm-hmm. And when we are gathering to do something, we just need to look around and see if we have gathered representatives of the people who are affected by the problem we're concerned about. Yeah. I'm also, you know, just thinking about the climate and the culture right now. And not that award shows are the barometer for anything, mm-hmm. but I've noticed, you know, almost every award show, women were very outspoken about equality and sexual harassment, and not one man was. Why do you think that it is still so difficult for men to genuinely speak up? Well, some do and some would, but are hesitant, mm-hmm. and some really are opposed. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, so they're— with the Time's Up movement, mm-hmm. there were lots of men who wanted to join and be supportive. It needed to be women's voices mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. It's not unlike the the racial mm-hmm. situation, too, because I think white people probably become the best allies when we say to ourselves, I'm not doing it for someone else. I'm doing it for me. So, <laughs> So when men say... I also am in a prison. I recognize that it's uh, maybe a superior prison with better furniture. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but the, the masculine role is still deprived of all those human qualities that are wrongly called feminine, which are just human. Yeah. But I think there are more and more men who understand that they are doing it for women and also for themselves. They don't want to be deprived of all their human qualities. They don't want to die five years earlier because the masculine role kills them. Yeah. Yeah, so it is, it's like, while we're trying to have equality for women and have us be on the same playing field as men, is it also possible for us to help men dismantle the sort of toxic rhetoric they've been taught? No, I I don't think we're responsible for their movement. I mean, we've already cooked their dinner. We don't need to make their movement. But <laughs> that's me snapping. <laughs> but um, but I do think we need to understand what it comes from. So, mm. for instance, the whole theory of parenting uh, for a long time, maybe still in some people's minds, included the idea that mothers, after a certain point, should not be too close to their sons because this somehow would impede their masculinity and mm-hmm. heaven forfend, make them gay or, you know, yeah. I don't know. Uh, so so mothers, you know, who were frequently the most, the closest and most trusted person giving, given the unfortunate patriarchal family structure, yeah. were told to distance themselves from their sons. Mm. Uh, and... To the son, you know, this was this was the closest person to him. I mean, you know, he probably felt abandoned. He might never trust another woman. Yeah. So w- w- mothers have to have the courage to stay close to their sons. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah. And fathers need to be real parents. Yeah. Fathers need to learn how to mother, you might say. Yeah. 
So men, you figure out who your leader or leaders are <laughs> and you undo the toxicity that's happening. Um, all right. So you, Glow Glow, are so phenomenal to me. I look up to you in so many ways. I think you are just so wise about so many things, whether it's feminism, whether it's, you know, taking control of your career. Also, when it comes to sex, like having good sex, having good orgasms, is that still something that's very important to you? Glow. No, well, here, you know, I'm so glad you <laughs> say that because here's here's the next revolution, I think. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, the beginning of the women's movement was also rescuing female orgasm and mm-hmm. saying, hello, you know, this is every, I mean, there were a whole a lot of women, there may still be, who never had experienced an orgasm. Yeah. Whose whole idea was, was servicing. Mm-hmm. And I still worry about this a lot because when I'm speaking, say, in high schools, the idea that girls are supposed to give men oral sex. Mm. And I always say to them, well, what's in it for you? Yeah. You know? And at first, they're kind of shocked. And then when they think about it, they sort of get interested. <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah, I can receive pleasure too. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So we need to liberate all the sensual, sexual feelings that are our human right as, as human beings and just part of us. Yeah. And we also need to remember that we spent a happy childhood without sexual feelings. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of special joy, right? Yeah. And at the other end of life, there's a whole joyous period without sexual feelings, too. Yeah. And right now, we so overvalue sex that we Mm. assume that, uh, you know, after 60 or whatever, uh, that you're still supposed to be sexual. Well, fine if you want to be, but it's more likely to be sensual than sexual. What would you describe it as? Is it you think that everyone is sex-obsessed or... What do you think that we're overvaluing when it comes to sexuality? Well, it's been so commercialized, it's hard to know, Mm. you know, because it's been so overemphasized in imagery. It's hard to know. And then, of course, we are living longer. So there is a longer period of time post-60 or so in in which um, all those brain cells previously devoted to sex are now available (laughs) for other interesting things. Yeah. Okay, so what is like an ideal sort of situation? What do you imagine would fill? I don't want to say void, but like take that place. Well, I'm not. Will. I'm not trying to prescribe for anybody right. else. You know, yeah. we're all individuals. But I am happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. And every once in a while, I'm walking in the street and I see this obsessed couple. You know, and I think, oh, I remember that. That was such fun. And oh, I'm so glad I don't have to. Yeah. Try <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm so glad I don't have to be groping anyone right now. Okay, I feel you. I feel you. Okay, well, you know, you've accomplished so much. Like, what do you hope for for the future for America, globally, if you want, even for yourself? What sort of positivity or what sort of change do you see happening or that you, you wish to happen? Mm. Well, I... I don't want to repeat all those because I think we kind of all hope Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we will, the shortest way I've ever been able to say it is that we will understand human beings are linked, not ranked. Mm, And begin to see those connections. Yeah. Well, Gloria, thank you so much. That was wonderful. And I think everyone listening is so grateful. No, well, thank you. Listen, I, you know, 
as as I've said this before, so maybe I've said it to you, I don't know, but I so feel that I had to wait for some of my friends to be born. So I'm just so oh glad my God. Glow, glow. <laughs> that you're doing what you're doing. You know, it makes me Thank happy. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. No, it totally makes me happy. Oh, you're the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, as always, gold, radio gold. I know she's so cute. I, like I hope everyone who listens to this and isn't like aware of her career like falls in love with her because she was a just a charm bot. I loved it. But anyway, the interview may be over, but this episode is not. Okay, so don't take off your headphones. Don't press pause or stop and then go outside and, you know, pick up your Instacart order. Because it's time for a weekly segment from Alana Glazer and I. It's time for my favorite segment and yours. And mine. Small acts of resistance. Resist the system. Resist the man. Resist the dominant discourse imposed upon us by the establishment. And this week, out of respect for Glow Glow and feminists every freaking wear, we thought it'd be only appropriate to talk about not shaving my goddamn legs. Just letting my damn leg hair grow to F out. It's soft and sweet. Yeah. People are like thermals. And I'm like, if you just grow out your leg hair, you don't need to buy thermals. Yeah. I know. You it could say it's truly warmer. 50 bucks each winter That's if right. you just grew your leg hair out. Right. During the summer, it's definitely... I'll let it get to like a five o'clock shadow, like sure. basically like a grizzled news reporter. Cute. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh. Yeah. News reporter on Sunday morning. Yeah, right. Just like, oh, breaking news, yeah. you know. Right, right. Amtrak. Right. Yes. You know? Dom. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I do like, because I moisturize a lot, I use a lot of cocoa butter. So I will say there is something nice about having a clean shaven yes. thigh. Yes. My mom keeps being like, are you not shaving anymore? <laughs> I'm like, bitch. Let me live. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and like now, like I shave my armpits like once a week. Yeah. Yeah. Max. I do once every like two weeks. Yeah. Once a week. I'm like yeah. digging my freaking armpit hair too. Yeah. That's hot. Hair. Hair is meaningful. It's yeah. Nice. All right, y'all. You heard it. So this week, we're just going to do a little body hair appreciation. Okay. If you want to show it off, show it off. Let it all grow. Let it show. Do what you want. Don't feel like you have to do anything. Ow. White Guys team includes me, Phoebe Robinson, Rachel Neal, Joanna Solitaroff, Jim Poyant, Paula Schumann, Jeremy Bloom, Isaac Jones, Matt Boynton, and Joe Plord. Our theme song was written by a white dude and sung by a bunch of other white dudes. Check out photos of me and famous feminist Gloria Steinem, What Up Glow Glow, from our interview on the WNYC Studios Facebook page. You can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dope Queen Phoebes. <laughs> 